we, uh, last week we started this series titled More. And it's, it's based on a couple of lines from the song we just finished. And the lines are, Behold the bright and risen sun, more beauty than this world has known. A simple message, just, just, it says, look carefully at Jesus and you will find more beauty than, than you have ever beheld in your lifetime, the collective beauty you've ever seen in your lifetime, ever known. And more than that, the collective beauty that all of us would have ever known. And more than that, the collective beauty that the world has ever known is wrapped up in Jesus. And so we started by focusing on, on this aspect of him being righteous. We just sang about his perfect, spotless righteousness. And we said, how, how stunning, how beautiful that God always does what's right. Hey, he always does that which is righteous. The, the God with all power that could do anything to us and with us and for us, he always does that which is right. He, he never does anything that is wrong. He never thinks or ponders or says or breathes anything other than what is perfectly right and righteous. I said, how, how beautiful is that? Is that characteristic? And, and, and he alone has that characteristic. And, and today we're going to talk about this other characteristic of Jesus which is his love. All of us in this room, all of us need to be loved. And I would suggest all of us long to be loved. We're wired by that, um, for that by God. He's hardwired us to, to need to be loved. And, and I would think this is most likely true. I'm pretty confident of this, that if I were to ask each of you, you might say, I'm, I'm loved to some degree, but, but I doubt any of you would say, I, I'm loved too much. With good love, with I'm, I'm loved too much. It's just overwhelming. I, I doubt that you'll ever meet anyone that would say the fact is I'm. There's so much of it I can hardly take it. It's been it's been going on for years. If if the ones loving me with this perfect, if they would just hold it back, it's just too much. But I think all of us would say, yeah, I'm I'm loved at some measure. I would like more. I would like to be loved more. And we're going to talk about who the more is in this. There are so many books on love. I perused Barnes & Noble. There actually is a, a store that has books in it that still exist, and I perused through that store, and I didn't count, but there have to be hundreds of titles that deal with something about love, different aspects about love. Some may be accurate, some may be not so accurate at all, but hundreds of titles, and, and I'm going to zero in on the final word on love, which is, which is Scripture, which is the Bible. That's where we'll zero in today. There are there are about 5,500 different references to love in Scripture, about 5,500 of them. And I want to start by giving you a summary. I'm going to boil down the essence of what Scripture says and give you, give you actually a definition of love. If you're taking notes, this would be key to write down. Love is simply this, biblically, it's simply this, is to want and do what is best for someone. To want and do what is best for someone. To want, in other words, your, your heart's desire would be you authentically, hey, you just simply want what's best for this other person. But not only that, but within your capacity to do something, you would also, you would do what's best for them. It's to want and do what's best for someone. And I would give you as one example, biblically, of uh, Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan. He's just talked about what matters most, loving God, loving people, and someone then says, well, I think I'd like an out on this. So and so, uh, you, you talk about loving people, love my neighbor, who's my neighbor? And so Jesus answers and he tells who the neighbor is. But as Jesus often does, he teaches more than that. He teaches what love is. And you would maybe know the story. There's this man that gets waylaid by a robber along the highway between two towns. 
and he's badly beaten and robbed, and he's lying by the roadside. And Jesus says there are these two people that pass by, and they were thought of as, as loving, good people, but they see the guy in the ditch. Each one independently sees the guy in the ditch, and they just keep on going. And then he says there's this third guy that comes along, and no one thinks that this guy's a loving guy, but this guy sees the guy in the ditch there, and he, he wants to do what's best for this person, and he doesn't stop at wanting. He actually does what's best. He actually uh, begins to, as much as he can, bandage the guy on the spot, and then he takes him uh, to this place where he can get better care, and then he provides for extended care for this guy. And Jesus is saying, not only is this guy saying, here's what a neighbor is, but this is what love does. Love simply wants and does what is best for someone. You and I, the closest we ever get is sometimes wanting and doing what's best for someone. I would suggest that there are times, I know this is true for me, there's some times that I'm just too tired. Uh, I can see that, you know, you've got a need, but I don't have any, any energy left to want and do anything about it. Or maybe I'm too lazy on a given day, or maybe I'm too busy on a given day. Maybe I'm too self-centered, and don't leave me hanging up here. You've been there too. There are some days I don't even think about you. All I, all I can think about is me. There's some days, and so I'm, I'm not capable of loving at those times. There's some days that, that the want is there. I'm thinking about you like a person. The want is there. But in ignorance, I don't really know what to do that's best, and so I do something not best. This last week, I, I had spent the morning with some clear time with God praying, and my prayer was about about loving well, and I thought about the people I would encounter, and, and there was some I was very specific about thinking and crafting. This is what love would look like, and because I want what's best, I want to do what's best, and so I, I actually met with these people as the day unfolded, and, and I sat down, and I told, them some, I told them some things I thought was best for them, and as the conversation unraveled, I realized how wrong I was. I, I didn't tell them what was I told them something that was actually destructive. I just didn't know any better. There's, there's some times that I have the want. I just don't know the right do on it. And I found myself having to go back and say, I am so sorry. Uh, forgive me. Let me back up and let me try again with this. Sometimes it's just ignorance. But, so I, I, don't, I don't love well because I don't, I don't know what it is to do the best. Sometimes I'm fearful because if I actually do what is best for someone, they may not welcome it. And sometimes that happens between spouses. Like one spouse knows this is what needs to be said and done, but it won't be welcome, and so we don't do it. Sometimes it happens between parents and children. I know what my child needs, but it won't be welcome. I won't do it. Sometimes it happens between friends. It happens so often among, between those of us that follow Jesus and our friends that don't follow Jesus. And we know, we know what's best is for them to have some way to actually meet him but we're afraid that if we try to make an introduction, it won't be welcome. And so we want what's best. We just don't do what's best. Sometimes we don't do it. The cost is just too high. Isn't that true? Sometimes you've known, like, this is what someone needs. But the cost is too high. I'm just not going to do it. And sometimes we think the person is undeserving, don't we? Sometimes we, I, know what they, I know what they need. I know what they need, but they don't deserve it. I'm, I'm not about to give them what they They don't deserve it. The writers of the New Testament saw in Jesus something the world had never seen. They saw this 
this characteristic, they saw that Jesus always wanted and did what was best for someone. No exceptions, no exclusions. Jesus always uh, wanted and did what was best for someone. And so much so that, that they actually created essentially a brand new word that's used in the New Testament. It was this Greek word, and, and the, the word was out there typically uh, um, essentially unused, undefined. And so they grabbed a hold of this word called agape, and they said, this is what this means. This means agape, this term now means, because we've seen Jesus, it means unconditional love. It means agape is when someone will always want and do what's best, because that's what we've seen of him. It's his unconditional love. Unconditional love, and again, this always wanting, always doing what's best for someone. And so, and so they saw that about Jesus, and, and saw it was always true of him. And this is the important thing for you to wrestle with. Don't let this slip by, is, is Jesus has agape for you. Jesus has this unconditional love for you. In this moment, if you could sense this, he's, he's looking at you. He's whispering your name, and he's saying, I have this agape, I have this unconditional love. It's not conditioned by anything, but I will always want and do what's best for you. I will always want and do what's best for you. I was looking at Scripture, and this perfect love of agape, this perfect love actually began for you. His love for you began before time began. This perfect love before time began. In Ephesians chapter 1, if you begin to read the first few verses, it says there that, that he loved you and chose you before he made the world. You. He's not talking to humanity. He's not even talking to this room. He's talking to you. I, I loved you and I chose you before I even made the world. And in the choosing, he was saying, I, I chose you. I want you to come to faith and come to life and come to eternity in heaven. You'll get, you'll get to decide if you want that. But, but before time began, and if you think about how long the universe has existed, there was a wide variety of ideas. And some people think it's existed for a few thousand years, some several billion years. And I would say either way, that's a long time, isn't it? For a, so a long, long, long time before you were ever born, like none of you are that old, a long time. He, he loved you. He already had it. His heartbeat was, I will always want, and I will always do what's best for you. Always, always, always. There was this perfect love in creating you. In Colossians 1, 15 and 16, in essence, that passage says that God created everything through Jesus. God the Father created everything through Jesus. In other words, in the creation of anything and everything, then the Father was there creating, but the creation happened through Jesus. Jesus was there doing the creating. And so think back, you know how old you are, you know when your actual birth day was, the day of your birth, and think about nine months before that, there was this day of conception. And, and, and Jesus was actually there. He wasn't making the world. He wasn't making seven billion people. He was making you. And ponder what the psalmist would write, which was true of you. He says, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb, you saw me before I was born. He was saying, in, in your, the creation of you, he loved you before your mama even knew there was a you. 
And she didn't know she was pregnant yet. And he was making you with, with, with inside her womb. And, and in creating you, he loved you with this personal, deep, deep love. He made you. He's given you this perfect love in every moment of your life. In John 1, 14. Let me say it again. He's given you this perfect love. And don't miss this. Every single moment of your life. John 1, 14 says, So the word became human. This is Jesus. Became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Full of unfailing love. In other words, his love never fails. Agape never fails. His always wanting and doing what's best for you has never failed. It's never failed. This is how much he cares about you. There's a place in, in Luke 12, 7. This is how much he cares, how much the details of your life. He says, the very hairs on your head are numbered. The very hairs on your head are numbered. Now, there's a caution there. He doesn't promise you get to keep all of them. <laughs> he just says that they're numbered. And this is a sidetrack, but I, I think, I haven't done the detailed study, but it seems to me the less hair you have, the more spiritual you are. I think it's... <laughs> I, I look around, and again, I haven't done a count, but I'm, I think it's, uh, the, the less you have, the closer you are to God and, and all that. I should really do a study to hone it down. I may be a little bit biased about that, but he, he cares about every detail. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean, because he knows every hair, you may think, well, I'd like a few more. It doesn't mean he's, that's what you really need. That's what's best. Okay. But he knows every single detail. I was looking through the four Gospels, when Jesus face-to-face met people. And I'll give you just a few examples of what I saw. In Matthew 8, he meets a man who has leprosy, deeply debilitating. It ostracized him from community and worship and uh, family and career, everything. And so Jesus meets this man, and as Jesus always, this is always the heartbeat and the reality of Jesus. He always wants and does what someone needs, and he determined that man that day needed to be healed, and he healed the man. He gave the man perfect health on that day. And I have seen at least twice, unmistakable, God did something like that, that kind of healing. But I know, I know that what you and I need most won't always be healing. And there's going to come a day that there's a better option than being healed. Do you realize if you, if you always got healed, you always continue to live in this broken, sin-filled planet, you never get to heaven. And there's going to come a day. I have no idea when. You don't either. But, but the best option, not to be healed. And maybe in the moment you'll think, oh, please, one more time. And then in that next moment you'll think, oh, wow, wish I'd gotten here sooner. <laughs> this is pretty, pretty remarkable then. I mean, Jesus, on that day... He gave the man health, and, and many times on this planet, and many times we don't even recognize he gives health. But that's not to assume that health is always what's best for us. I look at Matthew 15, and on that given day, there were 4,000 men plus women and children. And because there are always more women around Jesus than there are men, then there are probably about 6,000 women and a bunch of kids. So maybe, who knows, 20,000, 30,000 people there. there. And, and they're hungry. And, and Jesus, as always, he always wants and does what someone needs on that day, he decided they need provisions, and he fed all of them. Rax, he fed all of them. And there have been times, I hope you could say this about your life, there have been times Marie and I have seen the unmistakable provisions of God. Unmistakably, simply God showed up and met our needs. I, I know that. 
But there have been other times I realized that what was best was the lack of provisions. I was quitting the old business, and I was saying to God, God, how could you do this to my children? I won't, we won't be able to buy them all the toys. And, and there was this whisper of God saying, I know, they'll be better off with less toys, less provisions. And now a couple of grown sons, and they have a, a healthier perspective of possessions than they probably would have had. If I'd had my way, God, the Father, and Jesus, the Son, always, always wants and does what's best. Sometimes provisions, sometimes not. Mark 8, there's this time where uh, Peter has been around Jesus for quite a while, and he finally gets it. He's a pretty slow guy, but he finally gets it. He says, you're the Messiah. <laughs> it was miracles and all, again and again and again, after about the hundredth time. I, I think there's something different about you, Jesus. Like, I think you're the Son of God. I think you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, well done, you got that right. And then Jesus says, this is what that means. It means the day will come when I will be crucified for the sins of people. But three days later, I'll rise from the dead again, and Peter's thinking about that, and he, he pulls Jesus aside, and he's just said, you're the Messiah. In other words, you're the Lord. You're the Lord of lords. He pulls Jesus aside and said, you haven't thought this out really well. Let me help you with this. We're just going to scrap your plan. Just trust me, Jesus. We're going to go with my plan. And, and Jesus calls him on the carpet. He, he corrects him. It's exactly what Peter needed. It's exactly what was best for Peter. Jesus always wants and does what's best. That was a day he couldn't just affirm Peter. He had to correct him. And I've known so many of those days. I've loved Jesus has corrected me, and you probably have known some too. In Luke 18, there's this rich man that comes to Jesus. He's a young man, a rich man, and he's really, he's a good guy. The people looked at him and said, this guy's this guy holy compared to us. This guy's really holy. He's doing really well. And the man comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to earn my way to heaven? And Jesus tell, says, well, tell me what you're doing. And so he tells him about all his holiness. And Jesus says, that's, that's very good. Like, I'm glad you're doing those things. You just have like, just one more thing. Rich guy, sell all you have and follow me. And what he was saying to this man was, all that other stuff is great, but really, it, it really boils down to one thing is, is, will you place your faith in me? Will you follow me? Will you let me be the Lord of your life? Will you let me lead your life? It all boils down to that. If you let me do that, everything else will fall into place. I'll, I'll show you and teach you and change you. Everything else falls into place. That day, what that man needed was not affirmation about all the good he had done. He had done a ton of good. What that man needed was truth. Jesus always wants and does what's best for someone. He gave that man truth out of love. One more, John 8. There's this woman caught in this sin. It's a severe sin, and the penalty of it would be death. And Jesus loves her as he loves you. And on that day, he, he wanted and did what she needed most. What was best for her, what was best for her was she needed a second chance. He gave that woman a second chance. But what all of these people needed most, and what you and I need most is, can I just say this? Yeah, we just need forgiveness from sin. Because sin brings death and separation from God. That's the outcome of it. And the separation doesn't end in this lifetime. It goes into eternity. And there's this horrid eternity. And what they needed, what you and I need, is forgiveness from sin. That's what sin does. And it just takes one sin. And so as I'm saying that, wherever, wherever you are spiritually, 
uh, if you have trusted Jesus now and you know your sins are forgiven, ponder, ponder this. And if you haven't pondered this, is that every one of us in this room has sinned at least once. It's safe to say at least 10 times, isn't it? Is it safe to say at least 100 times? Probably safe to say at least 1,000 times. And I could keep with the multiplier. I'd probably still be okay for a while. Honestly, truth is, it just takes one. It just takes one. And, and every single one of us here, once we've committed the first sin, we've missed the bus. And we've missed the bus to this relationship with God. We've missed the bus. To, we just missed the bus. And there's nothing we can do. Nothing we can do. A few years back, uh, the New York Yankees announced they were going to finally close down iconic Yankee Stadium and build a new one. It had existed 75 years. It was known as the house that Ruth built. Babe Ruth, the most famous baseball player, uh, brought the crowds, and they built this beautiful stadium there. And, and, and I had grown up in deep south Texas. Uh, there was only, if you can imagine this, you young guys, there was only one baseball game on TV all week. It was called the Game of the Week. And so you, only, you had one shot to watch a game, and down in deep south Texas, it was almost always the Yankees. So as a kid, I grew up, I watched the Yankees. I loved the Yankees. And then Dana Aronson, our lead pastor, who was just up here, he actually grew up in the Bronx where Yankee Stadium is, and he grew up watching the Yankees, not on TV. Uh, he, would, he would watch live, and because of his dad's work, sometimes he'd be like in the inner bowels of Yankee Stadium. He would see the players. And so Dana and I connected one day and said, man, they're going to tear down Yankee Stadium, or they're going to no more games. And we said, we need to go. You've been there a lot. You need to see it one more time. I've never been there. I need to go before it dies. <laughs> and, and so we agreed we would go. So we made plans and we thought this is so cool. So we invited his kids. I invited mine and invited my brother. We had a crowd going. And, and since some of us had never been there, we said, could we stay two nights? We'll watch a game and stay. And, and who knows New York better than you? You could even talk their language. They could understand you. They couldn't understand us. We could ask for directions. They wouldn't know what we're asking for. And, and so Dana agreed. And so we watched the game the first night. I will never forget that night in Yankee Stadium. And, and then the second day, uh, man, if you ever go to New York, Dana is the best tour guide. He knows New York City. He knows where not to go. He knows where to go. And, and we're, we got the day. We're seeing all this great stuff that we all wanted to see. And, and we were approaching the evening. And he says, hey, just need to keep in mind that uh, we need to catch the subway because we were out in a suburb. We need to catch the subway in time where the subway ends. The, the last bus leaves there. I think it was 11 o'clock at night. And he said, we, we do not want to miss that bus. We do not want to be on that corner at that time of night. And we said, yeah, good. We've got lots of hours, lots to see. And we, the night's unfolding, and we want to see a little more, a little more. And, and, and Dana's multiple times that we, we, we cannot miss the bus. We don't want to be on that corner at that time of night. I know. I know. I'm from here. And, and finally, he's pulling us away, and I'm still a small-town boy at heart. I grew up in Star County, Texas, deep south Texas at the time, poorest county in the United States. Uh, very few paved roads in it, and, and so I'm still a small-town boy at, at heart, and Dana's, Dana's pulling us away. We're at um, uh, Times Square, and I'm going backwards, but the lights, the lights, you know. And, and so we finally get on the subway, and it's going to be close. We're all watching our watches, and we get off the subway. We rush to where the bus should be, and we're several minutes late. 
And I cannot tell you how fast my heart was beating. And I wasn't alone in that either. I think Dana's was beating fastest too. I, we, we, we missed the bus. And apparently you couldn't get cabs very fast out where we were at and everything. And we're in this corner. And I know New York is better, but I remember when it was the murder capital of the United States, all this. And so we missed the bus. And we're all looking at Dana. <laughs> Save us. We know you have a big twin. Where is he? Can he come out and hang out with us? And, and, and we're getting oriented, and I think Dana's looking at us and saying, oh, God, why did you give me these people to come with me here? And, and a few minutes passed, and all of a sudden, there's this big object coming down the road, and it's the bus, and the bus was several minutes late, and it picks us up, and it saves us then. But, but there was that window of time we thought we missed the bus, and we thought we were toast I th- maybe one of those times you know, we get to heaven a little earlier. That's what I honestly thought that. With, with, with sin, like one sin on our own, we miss the bus. That's just it. We miss the bus. But Jesus always wants and does what's best for you and for me, which led him to the cross on that day 2,000 years ago because he knew you were coming to this planet Remember, he loved you before he created the universe. He loved you. And, and he knew even where you'd be this day. He's, he's never taken your free will away. Uh, don't confuse that. You get to make all these choices, but he knew where you'd be. He knew your whole life. And, and, and so he went to the cross for you on that day. And, and he took your death and your separation from God on that day. So he could pay the full penalty and you would have the chance of being forgiven and the chance of every sin removed. And, and sin would no longer keep you back from relationship with God and heaven one day. He did that. There's something very important to understand about forgiveness. You can't forgive someone until you have faced the specifics of how they have harmed you. And, and if there are several ways you have to face all the specifics, you can't forgive someone. You can't do a blanket, I forgive you. If you've offended me in four ways... If I do, yeah, I forgive you, then, then a little time will pass, and, and one of those specifics is going to come back. I'll give you a, a precise example, not about you offending me, but uh, years back, I was been out of school a short time, and, and I was robbed. And someone took my wallet, which had quite a bit of cash in it, and they took this watch that had been a special gift, very expensive, but a special gift, special meaning to me, and they took my Aggie ring. And now I'll have to say this, at that time I didn't know Jesus and I didn't know what forgiveness was and I didn't care what forgiveness was. I just wanted revenge. I mean, I wanted them to pay triple for all of that. I never caught them, never found them, police never caught them, but I didn't know anything about forgiveness. But if I had, if I'd been a follower of Jesus and I'd understood what he was saying, then this is what I would have had to have done. I couldn't have just said, I forgive them. Yeah, they hurt me, a blanket forgiveness. Because if I'd just done that, then at, at the end of the month... By the way, Marie and I were engaged. I was trying to save for this. I, I, I hate to put these two words together. Really expensive honeymoon to Arkansas. I don't know if that's oxymoron. <laughs> May tell you how much money I had, but that's what I was saving for. It's getting close. And when the end of the month came, it was time to put more money in that. I had this special honeymoon savings account, and, and it wasn't there. If I hadn't faced that down, and said, whoever that was, man, they stole my money, and there will be none for the honeymoon account. And yet, I, I will take the hit. I will leave them to God and the authorities. I will not hold them accountable anymore. I let it go. If I'd not done that, then it would have all come flooding back. I 
they have to pay. But I, if I faced it down, it's done. But if I just faced down the money piece, and then I would find myself one day looking down at this new cheap watch that I was now wearing, and I would think not necessarily about how much the other one cost, but how special it was. It was a gift that could never be replaced. Irreplaceable. And if I hadn't faced that down and said, I will forgive them for stealing that watch, if I hadn't done that, it would have, it would have come up and I would have been hateful, angry all over again. But if I'd stopped there, oh my goodness, there'd have been the day I would look down at my hand and there's no Aggie ring and I would call College Station, which the day came I called College Station. I found out how much it cost to replace those Aggie rings. I would have been angry all over again if I didn't face it down. I, I would have to say, I understand what they have done and I don't hold them accountable. This is the application for you. That day on the cross, Jesus faced down every single sin you have ever committed or ever will, every single one, as only God could do. And you in mind, your face, your name, everything. And again, he's had nothing to do with you committing the sins or me committing them, but he knew in advance, as only God could do on the cross, he faced down every single one and said, I take the death for that one. I take the separation from the Father for that one. I pay the full penalty so you can have the chance of forgiveness. Every single one, the ugliness of that. With everyone, he'd say, I, I am bleeding for that sin. I'm dying for that sin. I'm being separated from the Father for that sin and that one and that one and that one and that one. For me, long, long, long list and for you as well. That's what happened that day. Jesus would say in John 15, 13, just hours before he would be nailed to the cross, he would say, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. There's no greater love. There's no greater agape. There's no greater wanting and doing what is best for someone than what he would do for us. And it's important to say this because as I worded it accurately so he could offer forgiveness to us, He doesn't force it upon us. He doesn't force relationship upon us. We can actually receive that by placing our faith in him. And faith has two components. It means to ask him to forgive us and ask him to lead us. It has to come a point in time that we say, I I believe you're the risen son of God. I, I can't see you right here. I can't touch you. I believe you're the risen son of God. And I'm placing my faith in you. I'm asking you to forgive every sin. You already died for them. You already bled. The blood dropped every single one of those sins. I'm I'm asking you now to make that forgiveness active for me. I'm asking you to lead my life. Like the rich, young, holy guy. Jesus, the the deal was, follow me. And and you're saying, lead my life. I want to follow you. I'll put my life underneath your leadership. In Hebrews 10, 10 and 17, it says this. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. That was his plan for you and for me. Perfect love, perfect love. And the perfect love never ends. I'll give you a passage to go read this afternoon, uh, profound about uh, love through eternity. Romans 8, read verses 31 through 39. I've got it broken up on a slide someplace, but Romans 8, 31 through 39, perfect love through eternity. But this is where it's important for us to go. This, this song says, um, um, behold the bright and risen sun. And look at him, look at him, look at him. More beauty 
than this world has known. And on this given day, look at the love he has for you and the depth of that love and, and, and how it's played out, how he has always, always wanted and done what's best for you. And think specifically about what he did 2,000 years ago on that day that cost him so much for you. We're about to celebrate communion, and there'll be a chance to reflect. And a couple of logistics, and then I want to bring the, the visual spiritual impact to bear for us. Um, with communion in a few moments when you have a chance, it's going to work best if you're on the floor. If you work, work your way toward this side of the aisle, come down, when you, and then you'll go back the other side. When you come down, uh, someone will take a piece of bread and, and break it off. And the imagery that Jesus intends is that you would understand that for each of your sins, each of them, his body was broken. So if you had a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand or a million, his body broken, 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 every one of them broken. And then you'll take that piece of bread, you'll dip it in this blood red cup. As you dip it in, then he would have you remember that actually blood flowed from his hands and feet, not just for humanity, but for you for every one of your sins, so you would be completely, as you trust him, faith, completely cleansed of all sins, every sin, completely cleansed, relationship with God now and forever. And if you would allow him to speak in that and meet you there, um, you might just, you might feel the presence of God, and you might hear him speaking freshly to you in that communion. This is what he did that night before he went to the cross for you and for me. He took the bread, he gave thanks to his Father in heaven, and he broke the bread and said, this is my body broken for you, for you, for you. Take and eat this. And then he took the cup and gave thanks to the Father and said, this is my blood which is shed for the forgiveness of sins for many, for you, for you. For you, every single one of them, take and drink this and remember me and what I've done in love for you. We pray, and then um, if you choose, and when you're ready, then come down and, and, and ponder as you take this, his perfect love, his agape, his always, always, always wanting and doing what's best for you. Lord Jesus, thank you for your deep love. May we be struck by it profoundly and freshly again. And uh, I pray there'll be a flood of people coming down and there'll be fresh meaning at a visceral level. Your spirit would like, stir our hearts and minds of the wonder of this perfect love um, that is expressed by the shedding of your blood, Jesus, for us. So our sins uh, could be completely forgiven, wiped clean, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.